A simple swab can tell you where you came from, even catch a killer. But what dangers lie in store when we reveal too much of who we are? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join us. We're crossing the line. Today I wanted to talk about, you know, an important topic that I think there's a lot of confusion about and a lot of assumptions about, and that's forensic genetic genealogy. And I just wanted to go behind the curtain on this stuff and really explain exactly what's going on, because it's not as easy as people might think. It's a lot harder than I thought when I started to learn the mechanics of it. I wanted to understand not only how murders are solved with forensic genetic genealogy, but I also wanted to learn about how companies like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, all of that stuff works. You know, what are we actually giving away if we put our DNA into it? What are we actually getting for that? You know, and what we're going to talk about today, I thought it would be interesting to watch this documentary that I've been noticing on Netflix. It's called Found. It follows these three adopted teenage girls who are looking for their birth parents. They were all born in China, and it was during a time during the country's really strict one-child policy. And Uh. so all these girls were adopted by American families, and, you know, now they're using these DNA tests like 23andMe to find their families back in China. And it's it was a very touching and very yeah. fascinating look at how it works. And, and it's heartbreaking also to get your hopes up that you could have found somebody and you find that you don't match. But it's also really interesting to find that like several of the girls were related. So I, wow. I suggest, you know, giving it a try. It's on Netflix. It's called Found. But that was a really insightful look at how these kinds of sites help connect people to find out a little bit more about who they are. It's not always about murder, Everett. No, you know, it's not always about murder. It was a very touching thing to just be able to find another family member. But today, mostly it is about murder. Today, it's about murder. The murder people will be happy today. Correct. Luckily, I know an expert, Dr. Claire Glenn, who we're going to talk to in a bit. And I've known Claire for a long time now. And she's helped me on many cases, and she's so knowledgeable about all of this. I think if you've been listening to true crime for any length of time, you know about CODIS, the DNA index system used to keep track of offenders' DNA. CODIS is good, and it's solved crimes, but CODIS is only as good as what goes into it. So if you get to a crime scene and you have some DNA there, if that criminal who committed that crime's DNA is not in CODIS, well, there's no match. And GEDmatch, which is the database people can upload their 23andMe's to and help authorities track down killers and rapists. And there's some controversy around this because it feels invasive. But on the other hand, you know, you have to think about what you're getting for it. If everybody puts their information, their DNA into this, we're going to have less crime. And the first thing most people think of when this is brought up is the Golden State Killer. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the the Golden State Killer put familial DNA on the map, if you will. I kind of don't want to talk about that case on the show, uh, the Golden State Killer case. How come? It's just been talked about so much. There's so many other cases we could discuss where familial DNA came into play. Yeah, you found a couple of them, right? 
there are three Indiana cold cases I want to talk about today. The authorities there didn't know their identities of three bodies found in the 80s, so they called them Adam, Brad, and Charlene Doe. Adam and Brad were the victims of a serial killer. He had confessed to killing them, but never knew their real names. This is something that I've run into myself with serial killers, interviewing serial killers. You know, they very rarely know the identities of the people they're killing. That's what makes serial killing so rare. They choose random victims. Charlene, as she was called, was murdered, her body covered with tires and set on fire. I've written several books about murderers who have tried to burn bodies. You know, you really need to get a body up to like 1,200 degrees in order to burn it. That's why, you know, when someone is turned into ashes after they die, they're put into like an incinerator that gets up to like 2,000 degrees. So it's not like you can pour gasoline on somebody, light them on fire, and they're gone. Putting tires on top of somebody and lighting those tires on fire, those tires get super hot. In 2009, Scott McCord, the county coroner and part-time school bus driver, he's... Must be a tiny town. Well, Scott McCord named them, requested DNA analysis and facial reconstruction of the does, and rallied the town to give these young people a proper funeral. 19 teenagers from the local high school volunteered to be pallbearers. Now, that's community. But their story didn't end there. We'll talk more about them later on. These days, DNA analysis has become such a routine part of investigations, right? I mean, someone grabs a sample and they run it through CODIS and boom, we could find a killer or a rapist pretty quickly in some cases. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is this method is still fairly new. You know, in the mid-90s, it was brand new during the OJ trial. That's a great point. Then people did not trust it. They didn't understand it. And a lot of people now maybe including myself, don't really have a lot of understanding or trust in how our DNA can be used if we let law enforcement use it to solve crimes. I I think that's the rub here, but I want to go back to the OJ case and the DNA. I recall all of that DNA, the pictures, the graphs, the charts, the numbers. I remember how weird that was. You know, it's like, What the hell is DNA? What is a strand of DNA? Everybody got a science course during that trial, you know? And and I think you're right. I think people were kind of skeptical of it all. Like, really? Right. You're introducing this completely new, what seems like an experimental tool into a very important case. Like, why should we rely on that. It looked like a ladder, you know, a spiral (laughs) staircase. And it's like, wow, you can solve a crime using that spiral staircase. Well, yeah, because everybody has a different spiral staircase in their body. One case that just pops into my mind is there was a crime scene where there was massive amounts of blood in a house. I mean, it was everywhere on the walls, on the floor, all over the kitchen. A woman had beaten another woman with a weight and All of that blood was from the victim, except there was one spot of blood on the sink that wasn't the victim's. And it was not even a droplet. It was just a tiny speck of blood. And that solved the whole entire case. Wow. Imagine if the person responsible for getting all those samples on the scene missed that one spot. That's how important their roles are. They ended up taking the entire sink out of the house. They didn't even touch it. It's also when you say the word DNA, the mind immediately goes to blood. Right. And I think that 
talking to Claire will be really interesting because it's not just a speck of blood that's going to help solve the case. There's going to be a bunch of other ways to test DNA that I don't think people realize. It goes back to the original comment you made about, you know, people not trusting putting their DNA into a database. Yeah, I'm interested to find out about that because I'm a very private person and I like to keep as much information about me away from any databases. So I'm interested to hear what good it can do because I just don't want any more of my information out there. But the the man knows everything about you anyway with your phone. Everything about you is known. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Claire Glenn, one of the most interesting forensic scientists you will ever hear. We'll be right back. So Dr. Claire Glenn is a professor at the University of New Haven, and I attended a lecture of hers a little while ago called Cracking the Code. And the lecture was part of a graduate certificate that Claire actually created, and it's on genetic genealogy, the forensic side of it, which is very popular now. And I thought I knew enough about it, but I didn't know really anything about it. Dr. Claire Glenn, tell us what you do. So I'm an associate professor at the Henry C. Lee College of Criminal Justice and Forensic Sciences within the Department of Forensic Science. I work with an awesome team of um, forensic scientists with a very varied skill set. I specifically cover forensic biology, forensic DNA, forensic genetic genealogy. So anything biological really is something that I work on. So it's quite a varied job. I get to research new methods, develop new methods that make our ability to solve crimes better. And then I get to actively consult as well on active criminal investigations. I wanted to have you on, Claire, because I was amazed at how the facts of forensic genetic genealogy crime solving differ from kind of what is talked about on social media and the news coverage, which... I think paints the wrong picture, but it's generally very hard, isn't it, to solve a crime using forensic genetic genealogy? Absolutely. It's a lot of manpower, a lot of resources. It's teams of people being involved in this process and creating a strategy of how to go searching these databases. You get the Kleenex from the crime scene or the sexual assault kit from a case. You first of all have to extract that DNA and quantitate it to make sure that you have enough DNA in order to do the single nucleotide polymorphism. We'll just call them SNPs from now on, um, the SNP testing. And, and that generates the data that we need for upload to the databases. And the thing is with a lot of crime scenes, is particularly the older ones, the cold cases, that DNA or that biological sample from that crime scene may not have been well preserved. And also that DNA that was there 40 years ago may have been consumed through other DNA testing over the years, such as our regular forensic DNA profiling for upload to CODIS. So we have to have a good quality starting product to be able to do anything. And and this is all dependent on building a family tree. I mean, it'd be great if you put the data in and you got a, a, a second cousin right away. But generally speaking, you're talking about fourth, fifth, sixth cousin, right? I mean, so yeah. how hard is that when you get there? It's extremely difficult. The thing is, you can have a case that can actually be solved 
relatively easy. If I upload a crime scene sample to GEDmatch and I get a match of someone within that database that is a estimated first cousin to our unknown perpetrator DNA that's recovered from the crime scene, I will be jumping for joy and be saying, this is great. I'll have this solved by tomorrow. Um, but ultimately, that's not what we're seeing the majority of the time. 99.9% .9 of the time, we're getting hits that are equivalent to a potential fourth, fifth, sixth uh, cousin. So if you think of your own family tree and think of what an, a fourth cousin actually is to you and how many generations that goes back to build right. it back to you, that's a huge amount of searching and building of numerous family trees. It's not just one family tree. So identifying their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their grandparents, their great grandparents and build those trees upwards until we reach common ancestors where those two trees join and then we build them back down towards our unknown perpetrator DNA from the crime scene. And that's building it back down, leading us potential identification there. That's the old school gumshoe police work of sitting down with these documents and trying to match them. I mean, trying to find out the commonality between Absolutely. this one person That's the fun and part the perpetrator. That's the fun part. Well, so <laughs> yeah. that direct lineage makes sense. But then once mm -hmm. you expand out towards the cousins and like the fifth, sixth, mm -hmm. 16th cousins, yeah. is that just a matter of also tracing birth certificates and death certificates of sisters and siblings of the parents and yeah. so on and, and so forth? aunts and uncles become very important there of of the grandparents had nine children as well going back generations people had a lot more children so in some of the cases that i've worked uh, as well for um identifying uh parents in adoption cases the further you go back the more children people were having so the more people you've got to investigate so you could be building in one case 25 30 different family trees that all interconnect um, and you could be going back eight nine ten generations the issue with going back that far and having to go back that far is we live in this digital age now where everything is available online i can look up the census records right now for you christina and i can probably find your tax records and i can find your your latest speeding ticket if you have one you oh know? that's when i was 16. Um, so yeah there's a few <laughs> 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 so we have this great digital age now where records are being quite well kept uh, and very detailed and also accurate. You can't hide anymore. Yeah, you can't. We have no privacy anymore. But yeah. you go back to the 1900s where records weren't as early 1900s, where records weren't being kept as great as they are now. Also, emigration records where people were arriving into the country, changing their name so as not to face discrimination, things like that, or just in particular with Irish names, it was people are never going to be able to pronounce them. So let's just make it an easy to say name. Those things all kind of make it challenging um, as right. you're going back. But again, that's I find that part of the fun part of, of un unraveling this. You mentioned privacy earlier, and that to mm -hmm. me is, I think, the part of these DNA kits that has always prevented me from mm -hmm doing them absolutely but now knowing that it's helped solve cold cases mm -hmm. there is good in it and so i would love if there is 
Like, what is your argument to someone like me who is hesitant to do it because I partly don't know, but I'm also partly scared of too much information getting out there? I totally understand that. And I had my own privacy concerns whenever I first did my first kit. My, I did my first kit in 2016. Prior to any knowledge of genetic genealogy for cold case investigations. And I'm a forensic scientist and a DNA expert at that. And I still didn't even think <laughs> this could ever be utilized for this. Innocently and just curiosity really got the better of me wanting to know how Irish I am, which I am 99.9% potatoes. So come on. I could never tell. <laughs> <laughs> I had the same kind of concerns as you, um, but more so I was saying I'm not opting in for the health searching or the health data that they generate because I was concerned. What if my health insurance it gets hacked and they see that I have this massive predisposition to the development of breast cancer or ovarian cancer during my lifetime, now my premiums go shooting up. So I said, I'll only do the biogeographical ancestry. I don't want to know anything about the health. Mm. And that's what I did. I think one of the misconceptions within the media and therefore the public mindset is that the law enforcement agency is looking at that person's DNA, that innocent family member's DNA within the database, but they're not. The law enforcement agency can't see that person's actual genetic code or DNA, and they're not searching through that person's DNA. All they're seeing is a, an amount of shared DNA between the person in the database, the innocent family member, and that crime scene sample belonging to the perpetrator of the crime. So it's in the media, it seems like we're searching innocent people's DNA, but we're not. We're not allowed to do that. It's these right. public open um, databases that members of the public have willingly and voluntarily uploaded their DNA data to. And that's how we're searching through those. But you would be allowed to go into those types of databases with a warrant. No, no, no. That's not allowed. No. Um, Ancestry and 23andMe um, have very strict rules. A warrant isn't going to allow any law enforcement agency to go in and randomly search it because that's all private. It's a private company. Family Tree DNA is one of the companies that does allow uh, law enforcement searching. So whenever you're um, taking a family tree DNA test and it's submitted into their database, all users are very aware that law enforcement do have access to this database. And GEDmatch is an open source database, right? Yeah. And so yeah, that you can easily search. But in order for GEDmatch to get those, a user has to actively upload their information. Exactly. So if you have taken an Ancestry DNA test and you've gotten your results, and then you have to actively take that data file, go to GEDmatch and upload it to there. But there's even a second step to that because within GEDmatch, if you want to be included in the searching of law enforcement sample and be available for that, you have to opt in. You have to select the setting saying, I'm willing for that to happen. I mean, there's a lot of people online who are armchair investigators, all of this stuff. And, and mm -hmm. at the same time, they're barking against privacy issues. And the best thing they can do is put their data in there so that yeah. it's available to be searched, not maybe for them, but somebody in their family that can connect to yeah, a killer. Absolutely. 
So in a way, could you say it's like the equivalent of like being an organ donor, right? Where you opt That's a good point. I to like be that. an organ donor and it's- You could help somebody. To, you could help somebody, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the same with this, where you opt in to potentially help solve cold cases. Yeah. It just has such immense value. This is the thing. And the more people in the databases, the bigger the databases grow, so does the power of forensic genetic genealogy. That conversation with Claire, she really explained things in a way I think people can can just digest really easily. Yeah, it was really helpful. She's so passionate about what she does. And I just used her and her class on a case that I've been working on. And uh, they're doing some research for me. That's so cool. So let me ask you something, Everett, though. I have a challenge for you. Oh, no. You love challenges, right? I do, but I'm scared. There's nothing to be scared of here. I have a challenge for you. And here's the challenge. Okay. Let's submit our DNA to the databases on this show. Okay. You got to think about it, huh? (laughs) No, you know, after hearing from her, I'm more convinced to to do it. I was definitely thinking that, I don't know what I was scared of, honestly. I think it was just like, what else can I submit that the big guy doesn't already have? But As Claire explained, though, it's not like your name's on it your DNA goes in there and it just kind of gets bypassed if you're not a criminal basically, and you're not getting picked up by someone searching for it. Right. So all it does is really help things along. And the fact that now hearing from her, the fact that it does more than just help solve cases, you know, like the fact that I can, you know, by just submitting my sample, I can help identify a Jane or John Doe who was a victim and, and help connect them with a family member. Like that's, that means something to me. And so that alone convinced me. I I'd like to know in my DNA 23 and me or Jed match, if I'm a descendant of the Ned Kelly gang in Australia, so I think if I put my DNA into Jed Match or 23andMe, I can follow the family tree along and, and find out. I've had family members track our family tree extensively. And so I'm aware of some of the people that we are related to. So I think maybe that's why I also... Are you a descendant of the Ned Kelly gang, Everett? I am not. I am related to Queen Elizabeth. Oh, and that's I where am... that comes from then. Now I get it. <laughs> After this interview, I was really interested to know more about this subject. So I did some more reading and I came across this article about this woman named Margaret Press, who was the software engineer and a mystery novelist. Really interesting combo there. In 2017, she was on her couch reading a mystery novel when she suddenly came up with an idea that the same technology that they use for CODIS could help families be reunited with the unidentified remains of loved ones. I never come up with big ideas on my couch. No, same. But she did, and she created the DNA Doe Project using GEDmatch. Oh, it's incredible, too. It's incredible. I mean, the the good that came out of that idea on that couch from a mystery novelist. Oh, my God. Right? Read more mystery novels. They'll spark great ideas. Wait, so what about that case that you started telling us in the very beginning? Well, that was the method they used to find the identities of Charlene Adam and Brad Doe. The department divided and conquered, trying to find answers on the three bodies. 
as we learned, it takes dozens of gigabytes in raw data, hundreds of hours of manpower and thousands of dollars. I mean, this shit is not like you put something into a computer and it spits out a match, you know, as Claire explained, that's not how it works. You know, and most police departments don't have a budget for it, but think about a tiny police department like the one with Charlene, Adam and Brad Doe. Right. It's almost like they have zero money to do anything better yet this. Right. No resources. They poured over the information trying to build family trees with no progress. They spent months doing this. I should add to this also, this cold case kind of work, the work I do, it takes passion. I mean, you got to be passionate about this or it's not going to happen. And patience. Well, for me, I don't have patience, but in my, yeah, in my, work, the, my work pushes me to have patience, you know? Because I'm constantly waiting for something. I find myself constantly waiting for a source or information or this police department to send me this document. But anyway, then in January 2021, GEDmatch decided to allow unidentified remain searches to be run on its entire database. Wow. So that thing you were worried about, Everett, I mean, here, you know, this is what we're talking about. And yeah. And even even Claire pushed some of this, you know, that we got to broaden our horizons. We we have to think outside the box with this stuff. We have to want to do it. In this case, suddenly there were several matches for Charlene Doe and her name, Jennifer Noreen Denton. And for me, that's what this is about. I have a couple of Jane Doe's I've been searching for identities for 10 years and it just kills me that this person is in a box with a number on it in a lab without no fucking name, without a deserved place in the earth. It really, really bothers me that there are so many Jane Doe's, John Doe's out there. And, and, I, and I say this, I've said it before, it's like their spirits are just roaming the universe and waiting to land next to their family so their family can at least come to the gravesite and visit them. I mean, these people left their house and never returned. And nobody knows where they are. And they don't have a name. But now, Jennifer Noreen Denton, that's her name. When she disappeared at the age of 24, she was a mom of a one-year-old daughter. When the police contacted the daughter, who's now grown, she was extremely emotional. And a DNA test proved that Jennifer was her mother. You see, see what happens here? I mean, bang, familial DNA just brought a family together. Granted, the mom's dead, but you know what? The family's back together now. At least they can bury this woman. And what about her case? Did they ever figure out who did it? Well, that's, that's a whole nother thing, you know? Charlene's case is still open. There were leads they pursued long ago, but now they can pursue them armed with information they needed then so not only do they have a cold case that's unsolved without a name now they got a cold case unsolved with a name so they can now start looking into jennifer noreen denton's background and start going from there i mean if if we are working under the basis that most people who are murdered know their killer you start with jennifer noreen denton's closest friends did the same thing happen to the john does then in february the family of brad doe was found in Jed Match. Whoa, okay. His name, 
Johnny Ingram Brandenburg. He was 19 years old when he disappeared from his Chicago neighborhood while walking to a friend's house. Mr. McCord, the town coroner who organized the burials of the remains, was touched when Johnny's mother reached out to him to attend his final memorial. She told him, quote, you've known Johnny almost as long as I have. Adam Doe's remains haven't been identified yet, but they say they're close. You see, this shit works. And we have to remember that this has all just begun. There's another story I saw of the 21-year-old woman from Arkansas who was strangled to death in 1981. Some might know her as the buckskin girl because of the buckskin poncho that she was wearing when her body was found. She went unidentified for 36 years. And it wasn't until 2018 that she became one of the first Jane Doe's to be identified using familial DNA. What's interesting is this happened in April 2018, just two weeks before the Golden State Killer was arrested. So it's really still brand new technology that we're working with here. It is. It's in its infancy. Are there any big drawbacks to this that you can think of? The drawbacks are budgets, money. It always comes down to money, you know, and manpower, women power. It's about bodies doing this work. As Claire explained, it takes a village to do this. Yeah, and that's why some police departments are using volunteers these days to help solve cases yep. and you know build family trees. That's what you it's know, about. There, I mean, there's just there's so much work to do, and if you have the time, you can get involved. You know, and it must be exhilarating when you discover a doe, right? Think about that. You've got volunteers in a room, and all of a sudden, bang! Somebody makes a discovery. Wow. Wow, you've you've solved someone's identity after 36 years. That's huge. So it's like millions of people won't take a vaccine. You think millions of people are going to put in their DNA to a database? I don't think so. You know, as we saw in January, the restrictions can change. You know, I mean, we've all seen Gattaca. We might have things to worry about down the line. You know, you just don't know how this stuff is going to be used in the future. You know, 10 years from now, 200 years from now. You know, I've been reading a a, a book on Buddhism lately, and Buddhism is all about the moment. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow didn't happen. The moment. And the moment right now for this stuff is happening. It's only going to grow. It's only going to get better. It's only going to get more effective. That's my guess. The writer says, the monk says, Take a card and on the card write, are you sure? And put it where you can see it. Because anxiety and fear is all about, should be about, are you sure? Because- I'm going to do that and put it on my fridge. Okay. And then put my picture under it. (laughs) Are you sure you need another helping? Do you really need that Ah, other piece of cheese? There you go. There you go. (laughs) That's great. Let me ask you a question. What do you think of Claire Glenn and the information she brought forward? I mean, it's fascinating, yeah. But what I took out of it all was how hard it all is. How many people it really takes to do this stuff. It takes a lot of person hours to do this. I think it's probably an underappreciated, underrecognized profession. I think their profession and their work gets easily whittled down to like a headline or a paragraph in a crime story. So it's interesting to hear from her side. And then the snot rag that they find in the garbage with the DNA on it, that gets all the headlines. I will say that, you know, she 
did give me a pretty solid argument of why I should finally submit to one of these tests. So uh, me too. Me too. I think I think I'll do that. I think I'm going to do it as well. I don't know that I'm going to look at the family tree because <laughs> I don't need any more dysfunction <laughs> to pop into my family tree. Uh, plenty of dysfunction here, so I, I don't need to know anymore. <laughs> and with that, we will be back next week. Same bat channel, same bat time, and I hope you subscribe. And leave us a review. Sources for today's episode come from a New York Times article by Virginia Hughes in May 2021 titled, In Order to Solve Three Cold Cases, This Small County Got a DNA Crash Course. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Special thanks to our producer, Catherine Law, and audio engineer, Brandon Dickert. Research is by Marissa Brown. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 